Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. If you need some new earbuds or headphones, go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter the promo code other people, O T H E R P P L. When you do that, you get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio. These are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the story behind the story. This is something you can do while in the fetal position. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I thank you for being with me. Are you in the fetal position? It's okay if you are. My guest today is Max Porter. His debut novel is called Grief is the Thing with Feathers. It's available now in the United States of America from Grey Wolf Press, one of our finest indies. Grief is the Thing with Feathers is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online literary magazine slash community. It has its own monthly book club. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. That's how it works. For more information on that, check out the NervousBreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. Uh, I had a great time talking with Max. I really enjoyed his book. Grief is the Thing with Feathers. It's one of those books. It, it is of a kind that I tend to really admire. I've spoken of this on this program numerous times. This is a short book. It's compact. It's poetic. It's complex. It's deeply affecting. I admire compression in literature, and this book has it in spades. Uh, I should add that it won the Dylan Thomas Prize. One of the better prizes in all of uh, letters. So, uh, Max Porter and I in conversation in, in just a minute. Uh, I don't have much else. I'm in, I'm in a phase right now, and I think you guys know this if you've been listening to recent episodes. I'm at a logistical crossroads with this program. I have a few remaining days where I'm going to have access to this garage, and then after that, uh, I'm out in the wilderness. I have no idea where I'm going to record. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bank as many episodes as I can before the deadline, before I'm out of here. And then I will uh, buy myself some time to scramble and find a new location. 
we don't know what's going to happen. Anything's possible. Should I start a Kickstarter? (laughs) Maybe I should. Get some studio space. Get some office space. The thing about it, I need a room. I can't be out in the open. I don't want to be in some sort of open floor plan. I want to be cloistered. It's all about being uh, hidden away. I just need a room with a desk and two chairs. I'll find it somewhere. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Max Porter. Uh, I just talked about him. I'm going to say his name again, Max Porter. His book is called Grief is the Thing with Feathers, out there now from Gray Wolf Press. Uh, just a great book and a great guy. He's, uh, we spoke by phone. He's in London. I was in Los Angeles and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Here he is, folks. This is Max Porter and his novel one more time is called grief is the thing with feathers. I'm in my bedroom in my small flat in South London. I just got home from work an hour or two ago. The kids are just down to sleep. We, we're, we currently had a bit of a plumbing disaster in our flat so right now all the books from one room are stacked up around me in this bedroom so i've all i can see is books so wait what happened plumbing wise oh the the we 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 got some romanian guys to fix our bathroom because they were cheap and friendly and then they didn't fix it very well so water was pouring through the wall and and the only way to fix that was to go through the wall of my son's bedroom to get to the bathroom pipe so everything had to come out of that room and then it went into the other room and then we had water coming from my upstairs neighbor's flat into that flat so we've had to decorate that room and <laughs> it's been one of those weeks you know yeah no i'm in the middle of a move so i'm sort of with you there's a lot to do can... yeah i tell you what i love though is when you take all the books off your shelf you, th- that's the special thing to do i think is to take every single book you own off the shelf and handle it and be like damn i've read a lot of books yeah i've not read enough books or oh i forgot i read those books it's been kind of profound Uh, but and yet now we're putting them back slowly my wife is insisting that i hoover i vacuum every single book before i put it back on the shelf you know it's weird i I just spent uh, like you know an entire afternoon dusting all of the books that are going to be moved from a current house to the new house and it's it's uh it was a long process there's a lot of books yeah 
Yeah, well, you know, you're dusting your Delillos over there where you are. <laughs> I'm, I'm dusting down whenever I'm dusting it. I mean, what it is amazing how much book, how much dust can settle on a book. Like, I get her point, but I'm quite a lazy person, so the idea of having to... Anyway, so that's what I'm doing. I'm sitting on our bed, covered with books and toys and children's crap and, you know, busy family, busy family flat, this. Yeah, well, okay, so let's start Let's start with uh, Ted Hughes. Speaking of your books, I mean, I feel like Ted Hughes is, is the obvious place to start. Uh, considering he figures uh, so largely into your life as a reader yeah. and also into your life as a writer and into your book. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how you uh, came to be such a fan of his work? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a critical fan. I'm not, I'm not an all-out fanboy. There are writers of whom I'm an all-out fanboy. Dickinson would be one of them. Um, but with Hughes, it's a critical relationship. There's a lot about him I don't like. There's a lot of there's a lot about there's a lot in his work I think is so strong. There's a lot in his work I think is extraordinary. So when I was younger, I read a lot of Hughes, uh, particularly the, the 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 great books of poetry about nature and the landscape, uh, kind of mid period Hughes. And then I got very obsessed with the Crow book because I first read that when I was a teenager. Like I think a lot of people read Crow when they're a teenager because it's dark and it's ugly and it's black and at that time in my life, I was like, "Wow, finally, there's a there's there's work being made that is that is appropriate for the for the 20th century, you know, for the century where we have a bomb, yeah, and kill everybody. You know, someone's writing poems that is that is that are fit for purpose for that, and that that I guess that's kind of a teenage impulse, but also it is a really radical and ugly and brilliant book. And then I kind of sat in it for a while, and then like a lot of people, I got very interested in the, the Hughes story, the Plath story, and I read a lot of books. And then I kind of got interested, like a few people recently in Britain have got interested in kind of trying to rescue Hughes from that, to try and separate the work from the life and to try and think about his impact as a, as a, as a lyric poet. Uh, and his letters came out in this country about maybe eight to ten years ago, and his letters are unbelievable. Have you read any of his letters? No, no, I haven't. I haven't. I, th I think it's his best work. He had these long friendships his whole life, which he mapped out in, in letters, and um, and the way that you see him dealing with the kind of trauma, carrying the cross of the whole Plath affair, and never speaking out about it, but but discussing it privately with his friends, that is, it's a really incredible body of work. Well, there's so, a, yeah. there there are some people who who blamed her suicide on him. I mean, there was a lot of blame laid at his feet. Yeah, mo some of it um, justly. He behaved very badly. Uh, you know, he wasn't he wasn't the kind of man you might model yourself on. In your, in, your, in your romantic and social life, <laughs> Ted Hughes wasn't a good man like that, but he was a good man. And what he did was he never spoke out about it. So he used to do readings and people would scream murderer. People chipped, you know, the famous thing about people chipping the name Hughes off Plath's grave in Yorkshire and all that kind of thing. And he never did anything about it until the end of his life when he published Birthday Letters. But, you know, so that that's kind of by the by for me, at least. Um, but my interest in it for this book came when I thought, what what would you what would it be like a particular moment in someone's life, a moment of extreme trauma, if the thing they're obsessed with comes alive. And I was thinking about it being the Odyssey, actually. For a long time, I thought I might have Telemachus from the Odyssey come into a guy's life who was a Homer scholar, and suddenly he's he's lost his wife, and then this boy moves in with them and starts to teach them about waiting for the, the possible return. Uh, and that would that would kind of been interesting, I think. But but there was it was irresistible to me choosing Hughes because there is this extra baggage and I kind of thought if you're going to play a game with dead poets if you're going to if you're going to play a game about influence and anxiety and 
and the like the the vertical axis of one poet influencing another and influencing the reader and so on and so forth. Like you may as well choose the big the, the big dirty heavy story. Yeah. And then that coincided with my obsession with crows, and that's what crows are doing. That's why Hughes chose Crow. That's why people have always chosen Crow because he's the player. Like he's the he's the trickster. He's the one who would be most interested. Like if anyone would ever say to me, "This is a good idea. You should choose Ted Hughes. You should not give a fuck what people will think." It would be Crow. It's quite a crow-like thing to do. Um, so yeah, all kind of knitted together like that. And then what about uh, grief? You know, because uh, you know, I, I think I mean obviously they're tied together. Your decision to uh, you know uh, use this device and create this character, this sort of supernatural crow character in your book, uh, who acts as a therapist. Like how how would you define this character, and how how did that come to you? Like it seems like it was kind of the linchpin of the entire thing. Yeah, he's the center. He's the center of the triptych. So he did, he is literally the linchpin. He's the thing that holds the other the other two panels or other two characters together. I mean, how would I describe him? I think that's right, as they, as Grey Wolf and Faber describe him on the book, that he is he is in constant development. He is all things to all people, but he's fundamentally when he arrives, simply he's 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 raw trauma when he arrives. Like he might even be a metaphor for grief or for the human brain in trauma. Hence the collapse of language and the violence and the profanity. Like he's he's the darkness. And then he becomes kind of more like an analyst. And I'm interested in, in psychoanalysis and therapy and, and some of the bullshit that comes with that, but also some of the possibility of that, some of the good things that come with that. So he's more like that in the middle. And then ultimately, at the end, he's, he's, he's basically a friend. He, him and dad kind of role reverse. He, he becomes someone you'd want in your house. And, and, and threaded through that, he is this caregiver for the children as well. So he's, he's babysitter and an antagonist. He's basically medicine in all forms. You know the the medicine that he's kind of the he's medicine in the old sense of like a bloodletting or a leech or or something quite painful that allows you to get through get through an illness like sweat it out. But he's also the kind of balm. He's also he's also a therapeutic thing. Well, and it's it strikes me too, you know, because grief when you're you, when you're going through it, and we all eventually do one way or another. Um, but when someone close to you uh, is lost, um, I don't know. I mean, for me in the past. It, it, it seems like you go into some sort of like some sort of extra gear kicks in uh it's hard to even put into words and so when i'm thinking about you sitting down to write a book that deals um so directly with this theme it makes sense to me that there would be a supernatural element to it that there would be yeah. kind of a uh there would have to be play there would have to be room for something magical to happen uh, there would have to be a, an ability to bend and uh, break rules, you know, of character and narrative yeah. and, and reality in order to try to get at something resembling the truth of what that experience is like. I mean, it's a it's a kind of yeah. it's a kind of chaos and it's a kind of it's chaos. Yeah. And it's unruly. It doesn't behave. It's a behavioral thing. It doesn't behave as, as... I think the, the fundamental thing is is time. That is what is that is what is so violated and that's what's so disrupted so you're saying i i agree with what you're saying that that normal language starts to fail but yeah. normal relationships between the human being and the space they're in starts to shift and change and behave erratically so as you know you go into these strange sinkholes and then you get these these sudden euphoric actually it's kind of, it's kind of crow like again it's bird like you get these sudden soaring lifts you get this kind of flood of of pure love or pure ecstasy you know like almost like a kind of um yeah, like states of ecstasy. And I think that 
I just felt always that prose wasn't going to be the right vehicle if I wanted to get at this, that I needed something more fragmentary because I wanted, I, I wanted a language that was as unruly and unpredictable as that, certainly at the beginning. I actually read, have you read a book by Denise Riley called um, Time Lived Without Its Flow? <laughs> That's been a big... I actually read it after I wrote the book, and I'm glad I did, because it's the kind of book... You know when you read an astonishing book, you would chuck whatever you're working on across the floor. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was so good. and it, it, Yeah, so Time Lived Without Its Flow, and that's more or less it. It's about how you're completely on your own that, that no one can no one can step in with you to that to that uniquely warped and unpredictable um new space you're in and and i think especially with with the children involved they they they're your lifeline at a time like that because if the architecture of your world and the home you live in and everything has been so rudely violated like so suddenly violated it's different with illness because there's been some preparation but with something sudden like that suddenly the language you have doesn't work and your relationship to the objects in your home has changed and your relationship to other human beings has changed like it needs a new language and i think that's why i i had to write the crow it will you know if in the same way as i feel like the crow poems are appropriate to a world where there's where there's a bomb or where there's been a holocaust or whatever the crow character in my book is is the only thing appropriate the only person able to to reconfigure the language and the symbolic register of their lives after this thing but I, but I, you know, that doesn't mean to say that I disrespect or don't believe in the truthfulness of plain prose about grief, good writing about grief. But when I think of the books I have admired like that, you know, like the famous ones like the Didion and the C.S. Lewis and everything, what I'm what I admire about them is is how exacting they are, mm-hmm. which is a different it's a different thing I think. That's someone with an incredibly sharp mind thinking hard, really hard and hard and harder about about the experience they're going through and the limits of their faith and the limits of their practical you know their practical lives or domestic setup and stuff like that and that that perhaps just i perhaps i've read too much of it or perhaps i'm impatient or perhaps i don't have uh, that that didn't feel i wanted to do something different yeah and it's something something else it seems like there's always one like it's there's one way to write your book you know there's there's many ways to write a book on grief but the one that you have like swimming in your head eventually it's it's got to find its form or not and this is this was it for you yeah this was it for me but it also comes i cannot separate it from um from also finding a way of writing i felt okay with because i don't feel like i'm a poet and i don't feel like i'm a prose writer i do feel like the natural state of things for me is somewhere in between the two that took me a long time as well that took me years of fiddling around and aborting things and eventually it happened when I was least expecting it to. And as much as I'm, I'm busy in my day job and I didn't want to write a book, I just wanted to get this thing down. And then I found the form. So in a way, it's like giving yourself permission to not think about it long enough to just get it, get it down. And what is your day job? Uh, I'm an editor at, at, a, at a literary publisher at Granta. Okay. So you, I mean, yeah. you work in books anyway on the other side of the table. Yeah, I work in books, and it's hard. It, and, and that was one of my my challenges, and it'll be an even bigger challenge if I ever do this again. Is is as I had to stop thinking about the books I was working on, because I'm quite an intense editor. I really like to get involved with my authors. I like to think really hard in the books with the people, in like in a discursive way. I want to make their books the best they can be, or the most themselves they can be, and that's intensive. And it's like, and, and it also is it. It's not something I'm wholly comfortable with. It, it, it. I know it's the right job for me because of how disquieting I find it as an experience. Because you're, 
I mean, there's loads of reasons why I find it a bit disquieting, but one of the reasons is that you're just, you you have to be the person that's in this text with them, thinking the same, you know, going to their level, or indeed if it's if it's disturbing material going inside their experiences or whatever with them, and that's that's good. It's 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 a it's almost like a love a love relationship. Well, yeah, and it, also the go on. No, I was just going to say it's a it's its own skill. It's a difficult thing to do well. I find you know to be to be able to achieve that level of creative empathy and to see a book, um, you know, to, to edit a book and not necessarily try to impose your will on it, but to try to actually see yeah. it through the person who's written its eyes. Yeah. Not everybody can empathy. do that. Empathy is everything. Well, this is the thing. I think it is a challenge. It is a good, it's a good, worthy, difficult thing. And I've been, and I, and I hope I've been getting better at it. And then, but also I think I've been getting less and less comfortable with the other side of it, which is that when the door closes and that person's no longer in the room or you're no longer sitting in a cafe going through this thing page by page, line by line, word by word, you're the person that has to speak about the book in the most crass, the most brutal terms. You know, you're the person that has to say, oh, this book didn't work, let's dump the author or, or you know, we need to give this a cover that makes it look like, you know, the latest Ben Marcus or, you know, you have to, you have to, you're, you're involved in a, in a business. It's an industry. Pub, there's publishing of books. And it's sometimes quite banal and it's sometimes quite uh, vulgar, you know? And, and you feel that you're betraying this, this, this empathy project you're describing on the other hand every time you get involved in the mucky, in the mucky business of it. Yeah. Um, so I've been a bit, a little, you know, and now I've added this weird third, this third part of that triangle, which is I know what it's like. Um, and I also know how, how exposing it is being published and how weird you feel. And how kind of lonely and, you know, how praise makes you feel a bit sick and criticism makes you feel a bit <laughs> sick. Like, the whole thing makes you feel sick. And so now I know that the best thing you can do is just phone someone even when there's no news and say, hey, are you doing all right? Or, hey, I read that Amazon One Star review. Fuck them. What You know, right. all those sorts of things. The daily project of empathizing and caring for someone in a serious way. Like, I, I've, I've now, I'm not doing that so well now because I'm so busy. Do you see what I mean? Like, I've, I've, I've had these these revelations about what is important in my job and now it's it's even harder for me to do those things because i know too much now yeah i mean did writing a book i mean now that you know you started editing and then you wrote the book and as you were writing the book did were you able to bring to bear some of your experiences and skills accrued as an editor onto your own work is it as easy to do when it's when it's your own and not somebody else's i don't know no no i don't think it is um i mean it might you know I hope my, you know, my punctuation, my grammar's okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, wrote, I wrote, you know, one of my characters speaks almost entirely in broken, pun-filled nonsense verse, so I don't know about that. I think uh, maybe if I wrote more conventional novels or plotted novels, it will be more of a thing. Uh, but also, I, I really was in quite a private zone. I, I, I tried not to think about work. And because I didn't expect it to be published, it wasn't like, oh, if I finish this and I show it to someone, it better be good because I'm a publisher and people will read it, will judge it harshly or whatever. I just didn't have any of those thoughts. Uh, and, and, you know, and it almost sounds like wishful thinking or retrospective thinking when I say now I really didn't have any of those thoughts, but I really didn't. I was so concerned with the voices and the play between the three that I just got into this this place, and now I know I'll never have that again. You know, the next book I will have these voices in my head. I will be keenly aware of of the time I'm not spending at work that I'm spending on the book, and you know, and how to make that work. And um, it's odd. It's like I've it's like I've landed in myself. You know, writing this book and reading from this book in public and thinking about this book feels like the most honest thing I've ever done. 
but it's like there's a kind of demon on my shoulder saying you're you're you've broken something <laughs> you, you, you know you've violated the the clarity of your purpose somehow it's like your own little crow you know sitting on your shoulder <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've got a dozen of them fluffing around i mean i'm a worry the other thing is i'm a worrier anyway i'm someone that, that lies in bed awake at night over analyzing relationships and and that kind of thing so so what i've basically provided myself with is a kind of huge sprawling three-dimensional like problem to think about <laughs> and it, some of it's deeply pleasurable and some of it is giving me real pleasure and, and some of it's kind of to chew on but i think that's good because i think we should be quite conscient publishers and anyone in the kind of culture industry should be quite analytical about what they do i think you need to we need to think about why we're putting things into the world how we're putting them into the world like how do we think about consumers and what they buy and what what like um, like what assumptions are we making about someone that walks into a bookshop and picks up a book and like you know if we call someone a crime reader or a women's fiction reader or a graphic novel fan like they're basically meaningless things and and doing this book that didn't quite fit anywhere has enabled me to see perhaps some of the, the foolishness the foolishness of the way we think about publishing so I, I hope it's kind of even if it means I eventually leave publishing because I want to write, I think I, I hope it's made me a better a better publisher. Yeah, I, 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 I well, the thought that strikes me is that it would be it would be beneficial. I know it's not possible because not everybody's going to have the opportunity to do all these jobs or even the inclination. But it seems healthy to have an experience of editing and an experience of publishing and being exposed, like you talked about. Like, it, but you know, a lot of writers don't have any idea what it's like to be an editor and to have to deal with the vulgarity of a bottom line business which it is and if you yeah. as a writer want your work published uh you you're volunteering for that that's that's part of it whether you like it or not and if you don't like it you yeah. can you can always just put it up on your blog you know <laughs> like yeah exactly and, and and actually this year i found a lot of you know not as much as in america where you have this incredibly big and vibrant and i guess in some senses problematic creative writing industry we have a, a, a smaller and comparable thing here and, and you know I get invited to go and speak at universities and increasingly the creative writing teachers are, are begging publishers to go in as much as writers and say tell them how it is tell them that you don't earn £800,000 advances or, or very rarely or, or, to, or indeed tell them the damage of an £800,000 advance which is going to be unearned or whatever but also tell them you know, tell them that the average writer in the UK earns £11,000 a year from their writing, so they're going to have to have a job. Tell them that it's lonely. Tell them that it's exposing. Tell them it's a bit humiliating. Like, tell them that for every good review, you get a killer. You know, it's good. You know, And I think even if the, even if the truths I've learnt this year have, have slightly eroded some of my faith in things or some of, my, some of what should have been pure enjoyment, like I'm, I'm glad. Like knowledge is good. I'm, I'm pleased with the knowledge. Yeah, it's better to and be. Sometimes good. I have to kind of apologise. Like today, I sent an email to my American editor, saying, and I titled it "The Email That Authors Should Never Send," and in it, I asked him how the book was selling, which is not a cool thing to do. Like an author <laughs> shouldn't really think about that. Like, some, my agent should be thinking about that, or someone else should be thinking about that. But I can't deny I'm a publisher. I'm curious, and also I was a bookseller for years, so. Once a bookseller, always a bookseller. You know, I'm interested to know how the book is selling. Um, but, you know, it's taken me a while to be easy with those two things, I think. And I, th I don't think anybody who publishes a book is entirely easy with those things. Or if they, <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe some people are able to detach, but most people who publish a book care about whether or not people are reading it. I mean, why else would you yeah. go through all this? 
true. But I've had to do a kind of, I've had to like perform for myself and others a kind of naivety. Do you know what I mean? Like I've had to, I've had to sort of adopt the position of someone that doesn't know. Right. No, I know. <laughs> right. So like someone emails me saying, oh, they're reprinting for the something time. And, you know, because it's done unexpectedly well in the UK in sales, I think, because it's a weird little book and no one thought it would sell any copies. So I'm, I'm as an author, I'm supposed to go, oh, wow, that's absolutely amazing. And, and I do say that and I do mean that. But I also, as a publisher, I'm like, okay, give me the numbers. Tell me how it's selling. Where's it selling? Are the chains taking it? Did Amazon take it? You know, because I'm, I'm curious. Mm. And I think, in a way, that's the thing of letting myself, uh, like, maybe feeling okay in the skin of a writer. And I'm only recently being able to do that. For a long time, if someone said, what do you do? I'd say, oh, I'm, a, I'm an editor. And I also, like, I'd apologetically also mention that I wrote a book. <laughs> I were- it kind of got silly. Like, a, like a self self like John Freeman. Do you know John? No. Uh-uh. He, he used to work at Granter, and now he's in America doing this magazine, Freeman's. He's kind of literary dude. Yeah. Anyway, he was like, he, he was mocking my this re- relentless English self-deprecation I have. <laughs> um, and I recognise I can let that slip a bit now. You know, I can uh, I can actually just say yeah, I'm I'm a writer. Yeah, you did it. I mean, Dylan Thomas Price. That's uh, that's good. That that's I feel like that's validating. That means it's real. It's validating. And also, yeah, it means I can um, pay some bills. Yeah. That's really good as well. Yeah. So yeah, I feel good. do you know why? I mean, can you talk about why you wrote this book? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining it comes from your own experiences of grief or, you know, you mentioned at the top of the interview that you have a, a wife and family. And in this book, you have a, a, a you know, a, a guy who is uh, grieving the loss of his wife. I would imagine there's some, you know, I, I'm married. I have a family. I have a wife. I, I can imagine that you're probably working through some fear of loss um, mm-hmm. when it comes to your own family. But uh, I also yeah. know, having read and you know some interviews with you, that you suffered the loss of your father when you were a young child. So I would imagine that that's a piece of the puzzle as well in terms of why yeah. you came to write this book. Yeah, I, 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 really, I really miss my dad. I've always really missed my dad in, in sometimes quite irrational ways and sometimes quite formative and important and genuine ways i really missed my dad and so i have always been interested in what happened to me and my brother when our dad died because we we, my my experience is totally different from the book i had a really great stepdad and we had step siblings and i lived a nice upbringing and i lived in you know i lived in a nice little part of england and i climbed trees and my friend had a farm and we were near london so you know it was all good um but i just you know my dad was gone um and me and my brother were really, really close. So the long-term, the long-term aim was, firstly, I wanted to find out some more about how my dad had died because I suspected we didn't know everything. Yeah, how, how, I was, may I ask how he how he died? Well, the truth is, he didn't. What I can say is, he didn't. It wasn't how we thought it was. It wasn't how we'd always been told it was. It was a bit more sad. The circumstances of his of his, of his last years were a bit more tragic and unhealthy and everything than we'd been told. Okay. And so I um I found that out because I met his friend and that's when I thought right I'm going to write this book about the stories we tell children. Because why if you're going to tell children it's not so much whether you tell them the truth or you tell them a lie it's whether you tell them a fabulous story. You know or it's whether you give them anything to chew on to grow on. And in fact in retrospect what happened to us was there's a way of protecting him but also protecting us and it probably worked i mean it me my brother and me became quite 
romantic, quite sentimental people, and we were very, very close. It threw us together in a really interesting way. And so long before I ever thought I'd write a book about someone dying, I thought I really want to write a book about two siblings who are, who are one character. And, and whether that's possible, whether that's possible, and whether I could get close to what it actually felt like for me, that you're always you're in this relation. You know, they say in the book that they're in brother with each other. Yeah, like it's like it's love. It's 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 an intense relationship that therefore needs work and takes its toll and has ups and downs, like a romantic relationship does, um, and and ultimately has has a has a language and and a, and a character all of its own and and that's what I tried to write that was my first aim well and i can imagine too how how old were you when you lost your father six and a half so that's a t- i mean you're young that's tough i mean it's never easy but um you know when you're that young and you have a sibling i would it's i would imagine it's like you're in a bunker together you know if if anything's going to make two siblings extremely close it would be something like that yeah but you hear stories of of of, of siblings that just aren't close in circumstances like that and that's always a bit baffling to me mm. and even even the other way you know sometimes when you meet someone that talks about how much they love their brother or their sister i always think like oh god what's wrong with you that's weird <laughs> <laughs> like it's almost a bit creepy you know and I, and yet i am super close with my brother you know he's my best friend um which even even in the saying of it sounds a bit sickly but me and my brother are, are, have a vocabulary of such relentless mockery and sarcasm and 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 kind of toughness with one another that it, it it's a sort of in my mind at least it kind of um leapfrogs a more sickly scenario to become a, a, a living breathing aggressive lovely good thing so yeah I, did, I i that that was an aim for a while but it's funny because i mean it's interesting you say about my wife and my kids and your what in thinking about that i did when i was writing it i did imagine I did go to the imagining of my wife dying in order to create the character, but I didn't really dwell on it. Like it was right there, ready. It wasn't a hard thing to imagine. No. So maybe there's a kind of morbidity on my part, or maybe I just have dark thoughts. I don't know. But it wasn't something I had to strive for. No, I think most I think, people. I think I know how it would be a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I, I understand that. That makes sense to me because because I think if you're in a marriage and uh, you're in love with somebody and you've made that kind of commitment and you have a family, uh, you live with that fear. It's like when I talk to friends of mine who are, are expecting a child for the first time, like my joke is always like, welcome to a state of permanent fear. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, because it, I mean, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Don't get me wrong, but it, it definitely raises the stakes. Does it not? I mean, it's, it feels like everything is kind of heightened in that, um, you know, you, uh, you stand to lose a lot when you take, that step but you also stand to gain you you also stand to gain a lot but you think you just you just live with that right that that's that's an on that's a that's a state of being that's the yeah that's the deal (laughs) it's growing up i guess i mean i I always felt this funny the difference between the feeling i have for my nieces and the feeling i have for my children my nieces were born a couple of years before my first child and i adore them i absolutely it's like it's like jumping into a ballpark or something. I have nothing but unconditional adoration for them. And, and I kind of, you know, I, I love the way they smell, the way they laugh. They're just be- they're beautiful children. And I want to be close to them and support them and all those sorts of things. My children is totally different. I was quite shocked when my kids came along. And I was like, this is, this is a different thing. Much less fun. Yeah. <laughs> Much less serious. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm terrified 
and and it's and and, and I'm bored. You know, there, there are things about parenting. You know, I don't want to sound like a kind of seventies um, Lacanian therapist, but you know, there, there are boredoms, there are frustrations, there are anxieties, there are like it's 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 easier because it's instinctive, but it's also much. It's, it's fraught. The whole thing is so fraught. Yes. And so yeah, it didn't. It didn't. I didn't have to work hard to think about the the loss of. The, you know, going to the hot place. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, because people said to me after I wrote it, oh, you know, how does your wife feel? Uh, you know, about you basically killing her off. <laughs> and I, I firstly had to remind myself and them that I, I made all this up, and and I made you know if if some of it is. I made it all up in order to tell the truth. Like I made it all up in order to come back around to a place which is quite familiar to me and, and you know, an, an imagined universe which is quite close to my own. But in a way, it was so far from me, I, and I'd never written fiction before, so the actual making up of stuff felt so weird and loose and free and suddenly so thrilling. Like I could do whatever I want with this with this person, with this man. I can make this man as you know, and he's not like me, so I can make him, I can make him anything I want. And then, weirdly, when I first gave it to my wife to read, I said, oh, are you, do, do you think this is weird? Are you okay with this? And, and what was brilliant was it hadn't occurred to her. She had read it, because she knows me, she had read it so much through the lens of me writing about my dad and my brother that it hadn't occurred to her to think that she was the wife. Hmm. Which was really refreshing, actually, for me. And yeah. kind of, and a bit like people saying, oh, I've never read any Ted Hughes, but I still enjoyed it. It's the same kind of... Something must have worked in the simplicity of the fable, you know, that the archetype of this ancient ancient thing that's happened to human beings forever. You know, you lose someone, and what do you do about that? And who do you call? Or does anyone visit you? And those sorts of things must have been simple enough and pure enough that that, that she didn't think about it. Yeah, I was just going to say we, everybody everybody knows what you know. Everybody knows grief one way or another, you know, or at least yeah. The, ima- the imagined experience of it. So the, the characters almost become incidental to that or, you know, the the, yeah, the subtext, yeah. you know, the Ted Hughes subtext or whatever becomes, you know, secondary. I hope it's patterning, like in a, like in a, like a carving up in the very high roof of a church that you don't see, but if you do see it, it's nice. Yeah, yeah, it exactly. your experience of being in the church, really. Exactly. But did, how, how did you feel about that? Did you, did you, did you feel the Hughes stuff was, I mean, if, did you feel like, oh, there's stuff here I'm not getting and it's pissing me off? Um, I mean, not not pissing me off, but I was like Wikipedia. I was doing some Wikipedia <laughs> of Ted Hughes. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. the kind of reader I am. I, w- I will want to know, like, I want I want to try to get context and I want to try to learn. And, you know, okay. so that my deficient my deficiencies there bothered me. But it wasn't that the this, this story itself or the book itself bothered me. You know, it was, it was more personal. Okay. Than I felt guilty for not knowing more about Ted Hughes. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I mean, but you know, what a world it would be if we all knew that much about Ted Hughes. <laughs> there are some things I put in it that were that I knew that no one would see apart from a couple of really old men in like, <laughs> university departments. That, and then, sure enough, it was so fun. About a month after the book came out, I got a string of letters and emails from these people I'd never heard of that were called Professor of Ted Hughes Studies or Professor of Yorkshire Poetry of the 1970s or whatever. And they would say, where did you know? How did you find that out? 
I was delighted to discover a reference in your book to such and such. How did you know about that? And I was like, oh, well, that's the jobs are good. And like that, that's the 0.0001% readership I was hoping might be tickled by that. But then I felt like I'd created a monster. Like, what have I done to the other percentage of people that would have been like, what the fuck's he talking about? Well, but actually, I realized it's a bit like I'm not comparing myself to Joyce, but you know, when you read Joyce or someone, you don't need to know. You could, if you wanted, slow down and understand everything. And you would drive yourself mad and you would entirely miss the point of Ulysses, which is that it roars along at an incredible clip and some of it you get and some of it you miss. So I hope I hope that I hope the clip is sufficient with my book that people can miss stuff. I think I it really is. hope. And then I don't know. It's, it's a funny. I knew it was a gamble. Well, I hope that the, the, the Ted Hughes scholars who wrote to you gave you good Amazon reviews. I feel like that's the least they could do. <laughs> <laughs> but I forget this about Amazon is that most people are on there to grind their own fucking sad annoying shit you know yeah uh, it's a funny thing isn't it to buy a book that you don't think you're going to like very much and then you really don't like it very much it confirms your suspicion or like reinforces your prejudices against certain types of experimental writing whatever it is and then you spend some time saying to basically yourself <laughs> That you didn't like it. I think it's a very <laughs> perplexing thing for me. Yeah, it's, it's a weird. Also, oh, my favorite thing is to look what else they bought. Because like, if if someone said they hated my book and I clicked on it and they were a big fan of, I don't know, Anne Carson or Maggie Nelson or Buzzle Banting or any like any of the people I'm interested in, I'd be like, oh, that's a shame. I'm really sorry. I've obviously, it's obviously not good enough or something. But you click on these people and they've bought. Just the strangest shit. One woman I clicked on, she'd bought a, 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 a platinum, <laughs> a platinum coated confirmation frame. <laughs> I don't like, even know what so that it's, is. It's exactly. It isn't anything. It's a photo frame that she's paid a lot more for because it it's called a confirmation frame. <laughs> like you put a confirmation photo in the frame. You mean like a, like a, like a religious thing? Like a photo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. A photo of your son getting confirmed or whatever. Yeah. But it's just a photo frame. So I thought, well, this person's already a massive asshole, like, for, for, you know, for the way in which they're consuming stuff. And, you know, like a Diamante dog collar or something she bought, and then a couple of romance novels. So it wasn't hard for me to see that this book would offend her. It would, it would annoy, offend, and disappoint her. So why did she buy it? Yeah. And then you get people saying hilarious things like, I wish I'd read a few pages. And it's like, well, frankly, dude, you should buy books in bookshops because then you have this um, unbelievable privilege of being able to pick it up and look at it. Yeah. It's crazy to well, buy a book on Amazon and then complain that you weren't allowed to read it. But they, I mean, there are some. Doesn't Amazon allow uh, somebody to read a few pages? Or at least on most books, you can flip through a sample. I, you know. Oh, I don't know if you can. I um, I've not looked. Yeah. Not looked. So. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the experience of grief. Transitioning from Amazon reviews back to grief. Yeah. Um, one of the things, uh, one of the aspects of grief, because uh, I don't have to tell you, like there's, it's a many-sided thing, and one, and I feel like you address a lot of them uh, in your book. And one of them that struck me is, you know, what happens to the bereaved in the immediate aftermath of loss, and then as time passes. And yeah. how life, you know, the, the the phrase "moving on," you know, gets a lot of, uh, mm. you know, it gets some some page some page space in your book, you know, and it's a yeah. it's a funny it's a funny thing to say to people who are reeling from a massive loss, and yeah. there, there, it also strikes me as somebody who has, um, you know, been bereaved himself or has been 
you know, at close proximity to it and is trying to mm. perform in the role of the supportive friend uh, or supportive family member, mm. how, you know, life sort of does just keep going and it becomes hard to know what to say. How much do I, do they need me to go over there all the time? Are they, mm -hmm. are they b bothered by my phone calls? Mm -hmm. uh, do you know what I'm saying? And then as a person who's been, you know, rocked by grief, you know, there's the big flurry of activity surrounding the funeral yeah. and the memorial. And maybe there's a, a little bit of, uh, a little bit more of that in the days to follow. And then yeah. Yeah. relatively quickly, uh, life goes on for everybody else. And you're sort yeah. of left yeah. in, in a quiet house or, you know, with yourself and, can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Because that's something that I, I feel confused about still in my own life. Like how to yeah. how to ha how to handle that from both sides. There's so much to say about that. I, I'm very against judgment. Is one thing to say. Um, so I think each to their own. You want you want to you want to wail. You want to scream. You want to burn your house down. Fine. You want you want to get on with it. Go back to work on the Monday morning. Fine. Each to their own. I think that the, one one of the problems with society, particularly a Westernized kind of gift card. Uh, society where, where we stick to these sort of cliches or these norms of recovery period and pain and everything is that is that we are in, we are encouraged to be like he's not grieving properly as if there is an authentic <laughs> way of grieving right and that means that there is that means that the griever is self-conscious about the about the, the the mechanisms of display attached to their grief and that's a problem for me that's a sham and I don't and I don't think it's fair on anybody involved so I think that the, the, the saddest thing when someone close to you is experiencing a, a, a tragic loss or whatever is that you then feel self-conscious about your behavior and you want to be authentic or, or even innovative. Like people stress out that their approach needs to be fresh and different <laughs> in order to, you know, do you see what I mean? Or more truthful. Yes. So I mustn't go around there with a cliche or I mustn't go around there um, and say something that's through or, or say something see-through. And then, you know, that the knock-on effect of that is that the the griever, the grieving person, is responsible for vindicating everyone else's responses, which is this kind of ridiculous charade that that, that is, you know, it's like a kind of mebus strip of, of performance. Yeah. That's what he says on page one. It's like I was becoming expert at identifying people's performances of woe for my dead wife, and then what he finds most refreshing is just is just truth. You know, so. It, uh, there's a writer in this country called Kathy Rensenbrink who was saying that this woman said to her after the death of her brother, you know, I lost someone. And I thought, I'd never get over it and all this stuff. And then at the end of the conversation, she, 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 she drops the bombshell that it's her cat she's talking about. And when Kathy first experienced it, she was livid. And she's like, how dare you compare the death of your cat to, to the death of my brother? But then as she's mellowed and thought about it over the years, she's been like, actually, it's totally fair enough for you to you know because because again each to their own right um i mean i there's so much to say about this i the, my my point or crow's point i think is that um you that it isn't going to be it isn't going to be linear nothing is is not going to be on on a train track that there isn't going to be this progression from disorder and chaos like you were saying to a, a neatened state which is normal which is back to normal um, and I think that that that's fine. I mean, my 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 thing is that it's a more organic thing, and it's 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 all polluting itself. So that so that things like, I mean, I guess it's a cliche now, but giggling at a funeral, so that that, that laughter and pain can coexist. Or the, the example in my family I always use, which is a bit gross actually, but it's that my my stepdad tapped me on the shoulder during a family funeral, 
to ask me whether I thought my cousin was sexy, <laughs> which I thought was really good. I was like, phew, we don't all have to sit here in these, you know, these uncomfortable suits for this person that said, please don't bury me in a bloody wooden box with gold doorknobs on it. Please don't all sit in a church feeling sad. Have a party. Yeah. And however much people say that, sure enough, the minute they die, we're all sitting in a church in an uncomfortable suit singing religious songs this person never would have liked us to sing yep. and then putting them in the ground in a wooden box with door handles it's not okay you know so i, I feel i feel that kind of a, a slight anger but also the anger for me is is related to the end this this notional end result which is the kind of happiness that we're back to being okay like the, the sham of the happiness industry basically that there is that there is a mean human being that, that is that is healthy exercises regularly has a good sex life has an iphone and a very you know and various kind of economic and technological accoutrements of normality and therefore don't don't waste any more of that time grieving like that that's gross to me like w- be shaped by loss like let let the let the loss of people shape you but also let it be ecstatic if you want like some of my mornings so for my grandmother who i was really fond of my grief for her is kind of joyful when I think of her, she's the person I miss most in my life. And when I think of her, it's a celebratory thing. Yeah, we're not very good at that, I don't think. Well, especially I, I, especially if somebody especially if somebody's had a long life, you know, like a, I, I'm assuming your grandmother yeah. lived a full life. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's part of it. I think when somebody has a full run in in particular, and it's a full life with a lot of love. Um, you know, I mean, we should it, be dancing in the streets. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with but, that. I mean, but this is the thing, though. We should be dancing in the streets while they're alive. Mm. You know, the, the the whole, especially on social media now, the whole thing of people suddenly spilling out these feelings about people when they die. That that it that is a shame. You know, like love the things you love, celebrate them internally, or, you know, visibly or privately, all the time. Don't wait till they die. And and that, the flip side of that for me is how grotesque it is. And I particularly feel this in Britain. And I don't know how it, how it is in America, but we have a class of politicians for whom the photo opportunity of commemoration is all important. Oh, sure. So we have to, you know, David Cameron has to be seen wearing his red poppy. And if he's not wearing his red poppy, they Photoshop one on him. What is Otherwise, that? What kind of, What does a red poppy mean? We, 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 for, for, for Remembrance Day, we, have a, we wear a red poppy. Okay. Which is a, a remembrance of, of the fallen in the two world wars. Yeah. So everyone in this country puts on a poppy. And now there's a kind of finger-pointing thing, which is why aren't people wearing a poppy? As if, as if by not wearing a poppy or forgetting to wear a poppy, you're saying you don't care about people that died in the war. And it's like, well, well no, maybe, a, maybe he forgot it, maybe, but also it, he doesn't need to perform his... He, he, that grief could be private. That respect to the fallen could take many, many different forms. But the public performance of it, you know, with a symbol attached to your shirt, needn't be the primary one. No. And then, you know, there was a whole thing of people wearing white poppies, which meant never again. It's like a peace protest thing. And then politicians were told that that was grotesque to wear a white poppy because there are active servicemen, men and women, who are out serving now. And what you're saying they shouldn't be there. You're saying you don't care about their deaths. And all this kind of shit that is actually none of it is actually respond is, is none of it is actually thinking through and the logical progression for me being pacifism of why you wouldn't want a war again in the first place yeah like, it's also very you know, te- it's also very te- it's also very tedious it reminds me of like the uh the american flag pin on the, the suit lapel like i don't know if, yeah. if you're familiar with this but if you're an american politician and you don't wear an american flag pin on your lapel you're suddenly 
you know, uh, a traitor to your country. A dangerous, a dangerous <laughs> is, Islamist or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. It's insanity. Well, we had this thing with the, the thing that the, the kind of kernel of my annoyance for this was we had a thing where we had this piece of artwork that was commissioned outside the Tower of London. And, you know, you know how loaded everything is in Britain with history anyway, with history and hypocrisy just coats everything in this country anyway. <laughs> but they built this piece of artwork outside the Tower of London where we used to put Scottish and Welsh people's heads on spikes, for Christ's sake. I mean, it's not like a it's not an emblem of our of our forward thinking, you know, skills as a people. Anyway, so there was this sea of ceramic poppies and it was kind of beautiful. It looked like they were spilling out and it looked a bit like blood and it was kind of a striking piece of work. Anyway, the Prime Minister knelt down, photo opportunity, and planted one of these ceramic poppies. And that night, he hosted and went to a dinner for the arms trade, just around the corner. And that really, I can't think of many other things that have upset me or enraged me as much as that. Because he's, he's, he's completely failing to actually care. Do, do you know what I mean? To actually yes. grieve. Sure. You know, I have this Korean writer, Han Kang, who... who who is saying that her work isn't is always whatever she's working on it is an effort to mourn better to to refine the thinking that we're doing about what's happened before and what's again and I, and I keep talking about, about this with people because I think that is as as a as an as a mission statement and as a as a kind of attack on any any kind of political hypocrisy or daily hypocrisy that is the thing so if this book means anything and crow means anything it's like don't don't come to me with um, with with imitative strategies or or gift card strategies or whatever it is. For let me do this my own way, and if that way is is like a radical juxtaposition of of deep deep thinking and fart jokes, or like extreme silence and thought and poetic thought with with you know two little kids waving their dicks around on a beach, like let that be. Let it be bespoke. Do you know what I mean? As long as it's serious, I think it's true. Sure. And I just, yeah, you know, I just wanted to tell the truth about it. Well, so and what about what about in your own life? Like, let's say uh, somebody close to you experiences a loss, like a powerful loss. Do you have any idea, having gone through, you know, the loss of your of your father, and having, I'm sure, lived long enough to experience loss, like with your grandmother and so on and so forth? You, you know, you've been around the block a little bit with this, like. When somebody you know, friend of yours, loses somebody, um, how do you perform in a support capacity? Like I'm always, I, I wrestle with this myself. Like I, I, I know a guy, I know a guy who, uh, I know a guy who uh, just lost his wife. I don't know him very well at all, but he, you know, he's a, you know, parent at my daughter's school, and it's just this horrible tragedy. And like I, I, I wrote an email, and then I heard back, and then you know, it's been probably uh, a couple of months now. And I haven't uh, said anything else. And I'm thinking, like, do, do, do I write back? Like, do I uh, yeah. invite him out for a – he's got plenty of – I'm imagining he's got plenty of friends. Like, it would be weird. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like this whole, like, thought yeah. process I go through. But I also feel like am I, am I failing in my humanity if I don't follow up because I know that it, it's probably getting quiet. You know what I'm saying? After that initial yeah. Rush, yeah. rush of support, it probably gets quiet. You could probably use, yeah. like, a little bit more support. So – I don't know. It's hard to do. Like, what do you do? I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm one for like, tot I, I have no, um, I have no filter. Like I'm one, I have a complete honesty problem. <laughs> so if I was in your situation, the email I would send would say, 
I realise it's been a couple of months. I realise you've probably got loads of people around you, but it did also occur to me that things might be going quiet and people that have been around you are known now not so around you. So if it would be remotely helpful or distracting or cool or anything for me to take you for a beer, I'd love to do that. And if that's the last thing you want because you're actually surrounded by people or you want to be alone, then totally cool. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. The, the, the thing, I don't know, it's funny because I... What I've taken to do, what I've taken to doing is is to, um, oh, it's more, it's like I do a thing where I, I don't want to anticipate how people are feeling, and I certainly don't want to offend people, but I, but I, so what I do is I kind of blur out the, the. I guess I try and get to the truth as fast as I possibly can to save everyone the embarrassment of dancing around it, so I would just say. I, I'm I'm the sort I'm the person that sends the message saying I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna say anything. You know where I am. Do you know what I mean? Like right. a, a kind of cutting to the chase. Because also the the, the, the it's it's odd how people because the social world is so delicate anyway and, and it is full of such odd and sometimes disingenuous gestures anyway. I, I, I worry it's, especially among adults. <laughs> Yeah, and we get. Don't you think we get so much less good at it? Yes, it's it's deteriorating. I feel like it's deteriorating in my life. Like as as bad as as bad as high school was. Like as as you know ridiculous as high school can be socially, I feel like yeah. it was it was much better than what I'm dealing with at age forty. You know, yeah. for whatever reason, it just feels like a. I feel like it's a. Is it atrophy? Is it? just a natural degeneration that happens with time like what's going on but it i think it's a bit of both and also it's a kind of it's a kind of defeatedness isn't it it's a kind of like oh we're actually maybe lots of idealism as well that like we are actually all utterly hopeless we are all completely at sea and i've and i've built all these structures and i've said all this talk i've talked all this talk and actually i've come to realize that none of it is you know so actually you, we're all sort of i think you get to that age you're just sort of shrugging you were like, wow, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, because I, I, I'm loving this, this the age my eldest son has, is six and a half. He is so, um, he's so direct. It's, it's exhilarating. So you just suddenly out of the middle of nowhere, how did such and such die? Or where did, where, you know, why does that happen? Or, you know, basically just that, that incredible um freshness and speed of, of of understanding which means that they're able to understand huge tragic like complex traumatic things in ways that you realize that the entire your entire adulthood has been an attempt to kind of make more complex or you know so i i, I guess being childlike I, i'm quite a fan of the being childlike around 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 sensitive things well it's like it's like uh not to get too precious about it but i remember like what was it like picasso said about he spent his entire life trying to learn how to paint like a kid. You know, that was basically it. You yeah. Know? So maybe that's 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 got some truth in it. Well, I think that that's a, that's that's a brilliant thing to think about for me because I I really one of the one of the reasons I didn't write this book before and one of the reasons I I'm kind of glad I've just got it out at a certain point is because it's my job to read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of novels and think about the novel and what it does and what it, whether it's fit for purpose and how it changes and what makes a good one and a bad one and what makes an insincere one and blah, blah 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 and i think so many of those the systems within novels now are so highly developed and so complex and, and as they should be i think what i was doing to some extent was just shedding all that off and going right back to the thing that still turns me on most 
which is the fa- which is the simplicity of the fable or, or the kid story. You know, like there were two brothers, their mum died. You know, or there was a bad prince and a good prince, uh-huh. or there was once upon a time there was a bird who knew who knew God or who knew. You know, there is something so refreshing in that simplicity and in those archetypes for me, and in, even in the style of them, even in the manner, there's a kind of swagger to them. A bit like a bit like how you can listen to. Uh, out thousands and thousands of hours of orchestral music, and then you just hear one bloke go dong on a cello, and you're like, uh, eh, are you like orgasming? It? Like, <laughs> there's something so unbelievably pure and true and simple about that. Well, and it's also like I think as a parent, you know, uh, who reads to his kids, I, I would imagine that maybe had an impact on you too, because when you, it's a really fun part of parenthood, especially if you're into books, to oh, it's the best. Get to introduce them to books and to see how they react, like. Uh, you know, you forget how, and also just their ability to pay attention and to focus. And yeah. my daughter can be like, my daughter can be like making shadow puppets. She can be facing the wall. She can be looking the other direction. She's getting all of yeah. it. I'm reading like yeah. incredibly detailed and insightful question. Yeah, and remember and remembers every detail. You know what I'm saying? Like every character, every thing, what they wore, what they said, where they were, like how to pronounce things. Like she, because I'm into Harry Potter with her now, and it's just. uh She's got that entire universe in her brain, and uh, she has all of it, you know, uh, she's able to, to grasp all of it, you know, and, and to recall all of it. How, how old is she? When did you start reading Harry Potter to her? Uh, she is almost six years old, and we started, I would say, six months ago. We've gotten through, like, five okay. five books already. You know, like, she's... Oh, really? Yeah, she's... We've been to Harry Potter World over at uh, Universal Studios. We've got the the oh, row... I mean, she's cool. fu- she's fully indoctrinated it. I had never read those books and, you know, always sort of had a, a, you know, a curiosity about them because of how, you know, how well they had done. But man, you read them to your kid and you see how they respond. She really knows what she's doing. Like, well, I don't know what. Yeah, she's she's good, right? Yeah. Okay, well, that's good to know. I was thinking I ought to wait till he was sort of seven, but I'm going to start. I'd love to read them. My my wife's been doing the Greek myths with my son and it's absolutely hilarious because she'll get to a bit and she'll think, right, I better... I better censor this, you know. She's like, oh, you know, Jason, Medea is about to kill her two sons, and Jess will be like, ah, and she killed the two sons. Yeah. And Sonny, my son just knows that something's been skipped, so he's like, how did she kill them? <laughs> right. <laughs> he wants to know. Yeah, they can't. You can't yeah, get. I mean, any, that, you can't get anything it, by him. No, and you know that that, in a way, you, maybe that's exactly what I'm talking about. You can get so much. We are all trying to get so much by each other as grown-ups. We're trying to go so many long ways around telling each other the truth or being honest. And I think maybe that's what I'm trying to get back to is the truth. And, you know, that's that, 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 that's the thing I love about kids' books. You know, so while you're right, you know, my kids have got these incredible attention spans. They can understand complex plots. Their, their recall is extraordinary. But they do love a good they do love a good bum joke. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think maybe that's what I was after in the book as well is, is life is very sad and very funny. So if you're gonna have these these almost essay like sections of like deep thinking which which has as it were some up-to-date thinking about the grief industry or what you know notions of moving on or whatever and it's kind of an angry book like whack it up next to a scene about a, a you know someone farting or shitting or something because <laughs> that's that's the constant reminder like that's the thing that pricks the bubble of hubris is that we're all human beings that need to go like it's funny right and especially if you're a kid it's funny when you point out to a kid the basic situation which is that we all think we're really powerful we think we're really clever 
we've done all these amazing things like fly to the moon and build nuclear bombs, but we still need to go and poop every few hours <laughs> and we still need to go to sleep every night. Yep. Like, I think I, I think it was important for me with my first book. And if it was my last book, I wouldn't mind because I think I've got that across. You know, that's some that I can leave for them. <laughs> well, and it's a, it's a more, Myself. you know, I think art that art that includes what you just talked about more accurately reflects our reality, you know, to exclude one, you know, in the name of good manners, for example, uh, I think yeah. it does a disservice because that's, I mean, like you say, that's, that's, that's our existence, you know, it's, it's a part of our existence, that absurdity and that unseriousness is every bit as real as the tragedy and the, the grave seriousness. Yeah. Which I think is why if I had to choose a thing to take to my desert island, it would be poems because poems, people do that so far and i was listening to your podcast with um eileen miles who i'm so into right now because she's just about to be but they're going to do a kind of collected uh, a friend of mine's publishing a kind of collected in the uk but i was i was listening to it and i was thinking about why like why how much can you do in a line like maybe i've maybe i've had this slightly defensive preoccupation with short books this year what can you do in a short book like if you take 350 pages to introduce some characters and you kill one of them off and that's going to move your reader because we know so much about that character and that character's relationships with everybody else like eileen miles kill a character in half a sentence <laughs> right know, she doesn't even she doesn't even need to mention that anyone's died she can do that she can do that because of the quality of the the stuff she's distilling and 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 the, and the sincerity of the distillation you know so yeah, so I think that, that that that's that's why I read poetry. Do you think if you write another book that you're going to stick to short form, like a shorter book? I can't imagine it would be long. I don't know. I don't know whether I'm going to stick to. I know that I'm. I know that I'm not comfortable writing pure prose. I'm, I'm not patient enough, and I'm not. Um, maybe I don't have enough free. I don't. Maybe I don't have enough space in my head. But I. I'd like to have a go at doing something that isn't that doesn't leap around quite so much. I want to get something calmer, hmm. something more, um, something more uh, thorough somehow. I don't know. This thing was a kind of burst of a sort of you know. This was more like making a mixtape, and next time I'd like to make a long piece of music. It's like an album. Yeah, like a proper album. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll tell you, uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm really happy that we got to spotlight it in the book club, and I uh, just really enjoyed talking with you. I wish you well. Uh, in your day job. I wish you well with your family and also uh, on whatever comes next should you choose to write another book. Thanks very much, Brad. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know if I do. There you go, guys. Max Porter. His novel is called Grief is the Thing with Feathers, available now from Grey Wolf Press. You can find Max on Twitter. His handle over there is at Max John Porter. And while you're at it, be sure to check out greywolfpress.org. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. This podcast has its own app. It's the best way to listen. Go get the app. It's available wherever uh, apps are available. It's also how you sign up for premium. It's a premium subscription service that gets you access to everything, more than 400 episodes and counting. You guys know how it works, right? You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. The most recent 50 are always free. And then if you want to get at everything, if you want, uh, what, 420? This is episode 420. 420. 420, you guys. Uh, if you want to get access to all 420 as of today, 
you just sign up for premium. It's uh, as cheap as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything, wherever you go at your fingertips. It's a great way to support the show. Maybe do that. You can also sign up for the TNB book club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. And uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Good time talking with Max. What a good guy. It's not too hot in here today. A brief respite from the summer heat. I might stay in here all day. I could luxuriate. I got bit by a spider the other day on my ankle. I still have a welt. Do you guys know what I go through? Getting eaten alive. Black Black Widow spiders are crawling all over me. I don't care. I've made a commitment to my audience. Please remember that Kierkegaard died at age 42 and that when the remains of Edgar Allan Poe 25 years after his death were disinterred from a pauper's grave for a more formal reburial, Walt Whitman, despite being disabled from a recent stroke, made the trip from Camden to Baltimore and was the only literary figure to attend the ceremony. That's it for now. Thanks to Max Porter. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, I'll be back next week, I think. I'm going to be homeless soon. That's what this is about, this logistical crossroads. It's about homelessness. The Other People Podcast needs a home. (laughs) 